Our first scripture reading is from the book of James, James chapter 4. And I want you to understand that James is, though most of this can actually apply to our personal relationships, he's actually talking about some of the problems going on in the synagogues of Christ that he is writing to inside the churches. And so beginning at verse chapter 4, verse 1, which is page 1012 in that blue Bible. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And at this point, James is pointing out that that kind of attitude is worldliness because that's how our world thrives. Might makes right, tearing each other apart and so forth. And so therefore, he comes to say in verse 4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, and here he's summarizing several passages, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Keep James 4 in the back of your head, and now we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 10 and 11. I'm going to read 10 now and summarize part of it, and then I'll read chapter 11 and summarize part of it as we work our way through the sermon. So you want to have your Bibles open to follow along. But 2 Chronicles 10, which is page 366. Solomon is dead, and now Rehoboam is set up as the king, and so comes Inauguration Day which is verse 1. Robin went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and said to Jeroboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. And so so, uh, Robum says, go away for three days, come back, I'll give you an answer. And then he gathers the counsel of the older men who had actually served his father. And he throws that counsel off. And then he listens to the counsel of his contemporaries, his own, his own age group, his young, the young counselors. So verse 8, he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And their counsel was this, rule with an iron fist, Solomon. So the older men said, yeah, you know, these people are right. There is some hardships here. Maybe you should compromise here. The younger counselor says, no, you need to rule with an iron fist, You need to be sassy about it. You need to put your little pinky in their face and say, my little pinky is bigger than my daddy's. It's a euphemism. Thigh. I'm going to be meaner, badder, bigger, tougher than my daddy ever was. Get over it. That was their counsel. And when everybody comes back together three days later, that's the, the statement he made to them. 
Then comes verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by God and Yahweh that Yahweh might fulfill his word which he has spoken by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel heard Jeroboam's answer, they scattered. They said, to your own tents, what do we have to do with David's kingdom any longer? And the vast majority went up north. Now, Roboam, being a little bit of a knucklehead, thought everything would still remain the same. And so then, verse 18, after the split came, then King Roboam sent Hadoram, who was taskmaster over the forced, forced labor, and the people of Israel, the northern tribes, stoned him to death with stones. And King Roboam quickly mounted his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And there's more to the story when we get to chapter 11. My friends, what I have summarized and read for you from 2 Chronicles chapter 11, chapter 10, and what I've read for you from James chapter 4, it is the corrective, it is the instructive, it is the hope-giving word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And now we move, Lord. Now we move into the disheartening portions of Chronicles. Oh, help us, oh good Lord, help us to keep our wits about us. Help us to learn, help us to hear, help us to receive, help us to take to heart all that we need to take to heart for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Almost everybody here knows that the sermon notes are in the back of the worship guide, but there's also a quotation in there, and then there are some cross-references and lots of space to write notes and some good questions, I think, at the end. I wrote them, they've got to be good questions, right? Now, most of you know my story, but here's the story as it goes. Anna and I were part of a Christian sect for many years. We were converted while we were stationed in Turkey and quickly became part of this sect, S-E-C-T, sect. This sect was founded by two ex-Presbyterian ministers around the 1820s. Now the sect, these two, these two ex-Presbyterian ministers that started the sect, they launched it on the idea of church unity. A church unity that revolved around restoring New Testament Christianity. And so how did they go about creating their church unity? Well, they would go into town after town and they would split every existing church in town. And then they would gather out of that the debris and draw them in to their unified church. That was the 1820s. Fast forward 200 years, we're now in 2023. And that sect is divided into at least, the last count I did, 39 different fragments. And each one of those factions is revolving around defining salvation-securing issues. I kid you not. They're all about securing their salvation. And there are topics like this. If you have age-segregated Sunday school like Heritage does, you're going to hell. If you have more than one cup in communion, you're going to hell. If you have a gymnasium and a fellowship hall at your church that your church is funded, you're going to hell. And the one that everybody knows them for is... And if you dare play any musical instruments in your worship service, you're going to hell. I kid you not. It's that serious with them. 
every subject, whichever fraction or fra uh, fragment you end up with, every one of those things is that important. Each group is quite proud of their purity, even to the point of literally damning all others who disagree with them. And they gloat over the disunions. They wear those disunions as badges of genuine honor. Yeah, we're the, we're the small group. Jesus is only going to save a little small group. We're it. It's us, not the rest of you people. Right? They wear this as a badge of honor. And each group is certain that their brand of Christianity is the only acceptable brand to God. Now, I recount that backstory, that personal backstory, not to demean any group, but it is instructive because we easily see similar mindsets inside of several Christian denominations and congregations at present. But for all of the motivations, for all of the cocksure confidence of their doctrinal and moral purity, for all of the cavalier certainty that their side is on the side of God's angels and any other side is, well, it's not on the side of God's angels. Yet there is rarely ever a pause to consider that the split and the division might actually be God's doing where God is speaking to his people to get their attention. Now, I tell you all of that so you'll know that this is a very personal chapter to me, 2 Chronicles 10 and 11. But let me take a side note for a minute. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you're visiting, this is the beauty of expositional preaching through whole books of the Bible. I get to talk about things whenever the chapter is talking about it that are favorites of mine. And I get to talk about things that make me squirmy uncomfortable. I get to talk about things that are contemporary problems we might have. And I get to talk about things that are not contemporary problems that we have. It's the beauty of expositional preaching. So, if you think, I'm worried that there's a split going on in this church. I'm not. This is just where I am in Second Chronicles. All right? One time I had a guy, I was preaching through Mark. And I happened to get through the whole book of Mark. I happened to get to the chapter where Jesus was talking about divorce. Well, somebody was visiting that day and was mad at me that I was pointing them out and talking about them. What? This is where I was at in Mark. I had no idea you were coming to church even, right? It's just where we are. It's the beauty of expositional preaching. And so then, let's look first then at the blueprint for a split. It's really all of chapter 10, actually... I could pull in all of chapter 10 and 11 as the blueprint, but we'll just do chapter 10 as the blueprint. Notice that the kingdom is passing into the hands of Solomon's son. That's verse 1. And on inauguration day, it becomes clear that there's a problem. He's immediately met with the problem. It's stated there in verses 1 through 7. Now, understand that the, personal, that the tr potential trouble Robum is facing has been rumbling under the surface, just under the surface for some time. But it's not an insurmountable problem. It is a real problem, but it's not insurmountable. It's actually possible for him to actually overcome it. For you see, in Solomon's reign, there was this undercurrent of discontent. This is why Jeroboam was chased out of the country by Solomon, it says in that parenthetical statement in verse 2. 
In Solomon's reign, there was this undercurrent of discontent and it was over labor and over the economy. Whatever the specific details were, it was over labor and economy. Whatever the details were, notice that Rehoboam has an opportunity to correct this real problem. Let me give you a, a, let me give you a foil to think through what's going on here. Acts 6 where the Christians who were Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows were not being cared for by the, the larger church, they came with a complaint. Our widows are being neglected, and the apostles actually deal with it. It was not an insurmountable problem. It could have split the church. But it was not an insurmountable problem. It was dealt with. Keep Acts 6, I won't bring it up again, but keep Acts 6 in the back of your head as a foil for what you see happening in 2 Chronicles chapter 10. And 11, it was not an insurmountable problem. But notice what, it becomes a problem. Because the very first thing you notice is that Rehoboam has a selective hearing loss. His attitude seems to be something like, no one over 30, or whatever the age group was. He can only hear those who are stoking his egos, his ego, those who are pumping up his pride, those who are inflaming his righteous fantasies. It was Anna yesterday, we were going on a date. Well, actually, we were going to Home Depot, but that for us is a date. <laughs> and we were going to Home Depot, and she was bringing this chapter up. She said, did you notice that Robum actually asks the older men a different question than he asks the younger men? Sure enough, he does. He asks the older counselors, what do you advise that we should say to this people. But then he asks his contemporaries, the younger ones, he says, what do you advise that we should say to this people? I mean, you can hear it subtly in the words. He really does not want the advice of the older counselors, and so he wants his contemporaries. He's got a selective hearing loss. He will only listen to those who are his kind, who will say what he wants, who will support his ambitions. Now, the older chaps, they resonate with the popular discontent. In fact, they give fairly good advice on how to respond back up there in verse 7. But these younger fellows, oh, well, they've got it going on. I mean, their counsel stokes a young man's ego. Did you know that? Did you listen to what they say. Their counsel stokes a young man's ego, a young king's ego, and this new king... He likes it. They're his age. They get him. They talk his language. He'll listen and he'll take their suggestions to heart. Here's how you need to answer them. You thought my daddy was tough? I'm bigger, badder, and meaner than my daddy. I'm going to rule you with an iron fist. That's the counsel they give. And sure enough, as the people gather, that's the statement he makes. And so you have to think about this. Just very briefly, I just have to say it. We need to be careful, my friends, who we listen to. There are lots of voices out there that speak your language. If you're a left-wing Democrat, right-wing Republican, conspiracy theorist wearing tin hats, whatever it is, there are lots of voices out there that speak your language. You need to be careful who you're listening to, it can be destructive. Just before the rupture happens, I mean, after the king has said what he said, then comes all of a sudden 
Verse 15, which gives us the real reason for the rupture, and it's stated for those who have ears to hear. Verse 15, so the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that Yahweh might fulfill his word, which he spoke to Ahijah the Shilonite, to, uh, through, uh, by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jerobam the son of Nebat. Notice that the writer of 2 Chronicles expects that you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is found in 1 Kings 11 and 12. He just expects that you know the rest of the story, the dark side of Solomon, that towards the last part of his life, his heart was won by his pagan wives, and so he began to build shrines to their gods and go worship there. He expects that you remember that part of the story when Ahijah the Shilonite comes to Solomon and says, the Lord says, we can't be having this compromise. And so Solomon, there are consequences to your actions. God is going to take the kingdom and he's going to, he's going to rupture it after you die. And ten parts are going to go with your neighbor up north and your descendants will only get two parts so I can continue to fill my, fulfill my word to David. And the story goes on. Ahijah the Shilonite comes to Jeroboam and takes his robe and rips it into 12 parts. He hands Jeroboam 10 parts of that robe, keeps two parts. He said, Jeroboam, God is bringing judgment upon his kingdom. And you get 10 parts of it. Just remember to follow the Lord. All of that's backstory. He expects that you remember. That's why he says what he says in verse 15. That Yahweh might fulfill his word. Which he spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jerobah the son of Nebat. All of this rupture in the kingdom. Was God's doing. As an act of judgment. And so this turn of affairs is brought about by God. The split is God's doing as he said he would do it. What the reliable God says, the reliable God does. There's a good news side to that. And there's a bad news side to that. And so Rehoboam's selective hearing loss and his snobbish, arrogant decision-making and his ham-fisted leadership and so forth, are all instruments that God uses to bring about God's rigor on his people. He brings the split. And the split happens, the church is divided, and the kingdom is parted. Verses 16 through 19, it scatters. And ten parts go with Jeroboam, ten tribes, and two, Judah and Benjamin primarily, go with Rehoboam in the south. My friends, as you end chapter 10, you realize the kingdom is ailing and sickly at this point. And if you remember last week's sermon, then you remember God actually gave Rehoboam's daddy, Solomon, a prescription, medicine, restorative medicine, a prescription to revive and reform the kingdom for such a time as this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal the land, the kingdom. He gave a prescription for such a time as this, and yet you notice that prescription is utterly missing from chapter 10. And it is utterly missing from chapter 11. 
It's missing because there's vanity in the split. And that's chapter 11, 1 through 12. There's vanity in the split. Notice how this begins. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin to humble God's people and to pray and to seek God's face and to, and to consider, are our ways wicked? Do we need to turn from our wicked ways? Is that what it says? He assembles Judah and Benjamin, collects 180,000 chief warriors to do what? To have a revival meeting? To have a come-to-Jesus meeting? No. To restore the kingdom to Rehoboam by force if necessary. Notice that Rehoboam, he believes the truth. The truth is that God had promised David's descendants that they would have the kingdom. He believes the truth as far as it serves his interests. Did you hear that? He believes the truth as far as it serves his interests. And so his response to the split is to exude certainty that his side is the right side and to strike out proud and loud. And so as he strikes out proud and loud, notice what happens beginning in verse 2. But the word of Yahweh came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Robin, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, thus says Yahweh, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his home, for this thing is from me. And it says, so they listened to the word of Yahweh and returned and did not go up against Jeroboam. They, the army, listened. This is a moment when the king was left without an army. Jeroboam wanted to go do it. The army said, no. We're going to listen to the Lord at this point, and they turn around and leave. Here's the king. He's got no army. He's stuck. Isn't that interesting, though? What does he do? He wants to strike out proud and loud, and the Lord comes and pulls him up short and reminds him that the split is God's rigor toward his people. Now, always remember, my friends, God's rigor is always meant to bring restoration. That's one of the central pieces of 2 Chronicles 7.14. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal the kingdom. And yet I say again, look high and look low in this chapter for any of 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14, and you will notice that God's way is missing. And so what is the king's reaction to the split? Well, it's verses 5 through 12. It's to build up his arsenal and shore up his defenses. Verse 5, Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and he built up cities for defense in Judah. Then verse 12, he just mentions the cities and then comes verse 12. And he put shields and spears in all the cities and he made them very strong. So he held Judah and Benjamin. That's interesting language. He held them like maybe there was some resistance even in Benjamin and Judah. So he forced their compliance. But notice his response is to build up his arsenal, to shore up his defenses, and to make sure that his righteous cause is robust and ready. There's still no reflection, no concept of, oh, maybe we need to humble ourselves. Maybe we need to pray. Maybe we need to seek God's face. Maybe we need to see if we have wicked ways we need to turn from. No, it's we're right And we will make sure everybody else knows we're right. That's his attitude. 
strikes out proud and loud, shores up his defenses and his arsenal. There's this huge, loud absence of 2 Chronicles 7.14, and it should stop us and make us wonder. Again, I draw your attention to that quotation from Christopher Hutchinson, who's a PCA pastor in Virginia, Blacksburg, Virginia. It's a book that I would love to see everybody get and everybody read. Called Rediscovering Humility. And he said this, one of the many things he wrote. God's grace in the gospel creates gospel rot humility which in turn leads to a gospel driven unity you'll notice that grace and gospel are completely missing from Roblom and his responses here pride and arrogance are the top drawer and notice what's happening it's shattering the kingdom God's grace in the gospel creates a gospel-wrought humility, which in turn leads to a gospel-driven unity. My friends, when I hear people priding themselves over this breakup or promoting that breach in Christ's church because, well, their side is right, and that other side, well, it's at least less than right, but I don't hear them ever calling for humility And I don't ever hear them calling for seeking God's face. And I don't ever hear them calling for heartbroken prayer and repentance and gospel sensitivity. Then I'm pretty certain something about that movement's rightness is just, well, not right. But wait, it looks... As if there's a glimmer of hopefulness in the split. And it's there in verses 13 through 17. So read along with me. 13 through 17, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel up in the north. Presented themselves to him to robe them from all places where they live. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem because he expects that you know the rest of the story. Because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of Yahweh, and Jeroboam appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. And those who had set their hearts to seek Yahweh, not only the Levites and the priests, but now any of the others up in the northern region who had set their hearts to seek Yahweh, God of Israel, came after the priests and the Levites from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to Yahweh, the God of their fathers. Woo! That's awesome. But the story doesn't end. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah for how many years? Three years. Said once. Hold on. For three years they made Roboam, the son of Solomon, secure. For they walked for how many years? Three years. Said twice in one verse. Three years in the way of David and Solomon. Notice that in the midst of this split, there's some glimmer of hopefulness because in God's providence, Rehoboam's realm in the south is mildly better than Jeroboam's up north, at least temporarily. Those who've set their hearts to seek 
Yahweh find themselves at sheer odds with Jeroboam, who is set up, remember Second, uh, uh, 1 Kings 12, verses 15 to the end of the chapter, has set up a whole alternative religious system in the name of Yahweh, even with golden calves and a whole new priesthood. And so those who've set their hearts to seek Yahweh find themselves in a society that is pushing hard against them and opposes them. So they go for refuge down south. Robum's realm and God's providence is mildly better. But notice that it is for a short season. When the writer tells you twice in one verse, only for three years, we're intended to sit up and take notice. But that southern realm provided a haven for the ones who were loyal and loved God who set their hearts to seek Yahweh. I find it interesting, it doesn't say anything about the southern tribes setting their hearts to seek Yahweh. It says it only about those coming out of the northern tribes. You know, sometimes you'll see statistics from England, how Christianity is dying in England... And if you will go and examine those statistics, you will find that most of the time it's the, the, the churches, the established church of England is dying. It is shrinking phenomenally fast. It's the state-owned church, right? The church of England. But what those statistics normally don't tell you is actually that Christianity is swelling in England. And you know who's swelling it? Immigrants from Africa and Asia who love Jesus and are coming in to this land, to England, and they're under the current, under the radar because they're not established church. They're coming in there and they're preaching the gospel and they're growing churches and it's growing. You just don't see that number because it's not the established church. It's something like that here, right? Here comes this influx of immigrants from the north who set their hearts to seek Yahweh. It's phenomenal that they're known for that, but not the locals, It gives us a glimmer of hopefulness in this split. Here's a season, a season where God's people in the south has this opportunity and they have this swelling momentum with a whole bunch of people who have set their hearts to seek Yahweh that are flowing into the land. They have the opportunity, they have the swelling momentum to return to 2 Chronicles 7.14. But then there's that repetition in that verse. This is only for three years, three years. And it gives a big question mark about the purity, the real purity of this righteous southern realm. And so does the next paragraph, where we see that there is more to the split. And that last paragraph of chapter 11, starting at verse 18 through 23... It's about Robum's love life. Sorry, but that's what it is. The gals that he married. So let me say this very quickly, because sometimes people get this messed up. Polygamy, which is one, uh, one man and multiple wives, or polyandry, one wife, multiple husbands, or incest, marrying within the family, is not how God intended things. Right? And it actually is damaging to society and families. How do I know? Because our Lord Jesus said... In Matthew 19, he quoted Genesis chapter 2, God's one man and one woman for as long as they both shall live. And he said, that's always God's standard. Everything else starts moving on a continuum of ugliness and brokenness and disease and social destruction. Anything outside of that begins to move in that direction. Poly, polygamy, polyandry, incest, and so forth. 
So notice then that the writer is just giving you a description. He's not giving you a prescription. He's not telling you you should go and do likewise. It's okay. Come on, come on. He's not saying you can go and do likewise, marry multiple wives. It's cool. Right? No, he's not saying that. He's just being descriptive. Here's Robum's love life. But it's as he's telling Robum's love life, he points out that there's more inside the split. Notice who is Robum's number one wife. That's usually how it happens in a polygamous society. The man will have a number one wife and all the rest of them are kind of down the pecking order. So Robum has his number one wife. And who is the number one wife? Maaka. And she's the daughter of whom? Absalom. Oh, wait a minute. Absalom, Absalom. 1 Samuel 15, Absalom. Oh, an arrogant cuss. Absalom, who was so proud of his hair, woo, that when he had his hair cut every year, he would weigh his hair. I assume he was going to sell it or something. He was so proud of his hair. He had a PR program that would have been to die for. In fact, he created a populist uprising to throw his father out of the kingdom. He was full of himself, not the kingdom. He was full of himself and not Yahweh. And that's Rehoboam's father-in-law. An arrogant cuss, Robum, has married into the family of an arrogant cuss. Hmm. Things just do not look good. And lo and behold, Maacah's son, Robum, it's Robum's son, but you always tell your sons in a polygamous society by the wife, by the mother. Maacah's son, he is going to promote as heir apparent and take over the kingdom when he's gone. Oh, it's going to be three generations of arrogance. Oh, no. Things don't look good for the kingdom. There's more to this split. There's this undercurrent. My friends, the future of this smaller, supposedly more righteous segment of God's kingdom is clearly questionable. And there will be no questions left when we get to chapter 12, which we will do next week. Chapter 12 is next week. My friends, there are lessons of plenty here in this chapter, chapter 10 and 11. But I'm going to give you two. First off, dear friends, arrogance is the enemy of God's grace. Arrogance is the enemy of God's kingdom and God's church. Because arrogance is the enemy of God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, says James in James 4, 6. And Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 5. Our proper response is when we see that hoary-headed hubris rising up. Hoary means white-haired. But you know, this ancient demon of hubris rising up in our hearts. The proper response is for us to humble ourselves before the Lord. And that's also what James says. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Arrogance is the enemy of grace. Arrogance is the enemy of the kingdom and the church. Because arrogance is the enemy of God. Which brings us to a second lesson... Dear friends, division in the church is never a thing to be celebrated. Ever. It is to be recognized for what it is. 
It is God's judgment on His people. It is God's rigor that should bring His restoration. But it is God's judgment upon His people. Now this story should settle that for us and we should walk away and say, no contest, you made your point. But just in case, let me give you two more passages. Isaiah 19 and verse 2, when God is describing how he is going to destroy Egypt and bring judgment upon Egypt in Isaiah 19, 2, one of the the things he says he will do is this. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Nations splitting apart is also God's judgment. Let those who have ears to hear listen. Just take out the name Egyptian and put in there, and I will cause Americans to stand against Americans. Or let's get closer to home. Let's just think church. I will cause Presbyterians to stand against Presbyterians. It's God's act of judgment should never be a celebration. Ever. 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 It should be humbling ourselves before the Lord. Pray. Seeking His face and examining, are there wicked ways here that we need to turn from? Again, in Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 8, when God is describing this season, actually this time when the kingdom divides and the the hundreds of years that this kingdom is divided, when God is describing it years, hundreds of years later, he says, for before those days, there was no wage for man or, or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I... I set every man against his neighbor. God brought the division of the church. But then there's a gospel promise in here. Because now there's a new day and God goes on to say, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days declares Yahweh of hosts. For there, is, there shall be a sowing of peace. Let me just say this, a church split, a denomination split, that kind of thing is God's judgment and it should bring us to mourn. But when there is unity, that is by God's grace. It should bring us to celebrate and shout glory to the Lord. A split is God's judgment, brings us to mourn. Unity amongst his people should bring us to celebrate. Why, oh why, do people celebrate rifts and ruptures, divisions and dissections in God's church? Why, oh why, when there are splits and fissures, do we ever rarely, if ever, hear the call of 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and see my face and turn from the wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal the kingdom. Why, oh, why do we go like Robum, all loud and proud into the fray, instead of submitting to God in his directions? And that's where this passage kind of leads us. 
We can go with this son of David, Rehoboam. We can go with Rehoboam's way, out loud and proud. Or we can pursue the way of another son of David, the greater son of David. In John 13, what does he say right before, not long before his crucifixion? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. But you also love one another. By this, all the world will know that you are my disciples. Which son of David will we follow? Now, we should and we must care about God's truth in the church. You've heard, I've said it a hundred times. I'll say it again. We should always care about truth. But we must make sure that it's not about God's truth like Rehoboam did. God's truth insofar as it serves my purposes. There must be truth married with God's gracious grace-given peace. And so God will go on in Zechariah 8 and he will say this. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. And then he goes on to say, therefore love truth, and peace. The two go together. And dear friends, I have to end on a positive note. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays, he prays, Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Right? He's praying for those whom the Father has given him, those who will believe on him, based upon the apostles' testimony. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your, your word is truth. But then he prays three times. He prays three times. And may they be one. He prays three times. As he's talking about the truth, he prays three times. And may they be one. Why would our great high priest have to pray for us that we would be one. Because since Genesis 3, just go read Genesis 4, you'll know what I mean. Since Genesis 3, we love splintering, shattering. As an atheist psychologist once said, we're hardwired for division, for tribalism. So our great high priest had to pray three times that they would be one. Twice, he says, and here's the reason why. That they will be one so that the world will know that you have sent me. You want to know why the world does not believe the gospel? Just look at the church. Are we one? No. He goes on to say that they would be one so that the world will know that you sent me and that the world will know that you love them just as much as you love me. He prayed three times. Here's the good news side of that. The prayer of our great high priest is being answered and it will be answered fully. The father will not say to his son, no way. It is being answered. It will be answered. It will be answered by grace alone. It will be answered in Christ alone. Let us long for it with faith alone. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established Believe as prophets, and you will succeed. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we come to you, and we pray. May we never be like Robum here, proud and loud, 
arrogant, full of spit and vinegar, certain that our side, our cause is so right that we never humble ourselves before you, that we never pray to you, that we never seek your face, that we never turn from our wicked ways. We are so grateful, Lord, for the grace, your grace in the gospel that creates gospel-wrought humility that in turn leads to a gospel-driven unity. Thank you for how you have bound us together in this congregation. May we be a reflection of your grace with all the gospel-wrought humility and the gospel-driven unity. May we be a reflection of your grace to our brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters, all around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.